0: Hey, folks. Welcome to uh, The Mind of a Skeptical Leftist. I'm Corey, your host. Uh, uh, this episode, I don't have a long preamble. I just kind of have uh, uh, my first interview is with Callie Wright, um, who is a podcaster and activist and speaker for at various conferences. And uh, yeah, they are a, a great person who has been around in the podcasting scene for a long time. I've known them for a long time, and and I think it's uh, really great to have them on to hear about their change in uh, political views uh, over the years and uh, just to know more about them and spread the word. And uh, and then, of course, uh, in the second half of the show, we have a, a book review uh, with uh, Justin Clark. The book we cover is The Question of Palestine by Edward Said uh it sounds like an amazing book it's a it's a really good review by a by uh justin so yeah i i don't have again i don't have much of a preamble both of these uh segments are kind of longer than i think that i've normally been putting in it's not that there's not much to say there's always stuff to say but sometimes i don't know how to say it um like i've been thinking about the idea of sin a lot lately uh because as an atheist obviously i think that it's a silly concept. There's no such thing as this ultimate bad, uh, like this thing that we're, I, we've sinned against. There's no God to, uh, be affected by such a thing. I, I disagree with the fundamental idea that humanity is broken and because of some original sin and, the, or that, or that sin can carry from one to another. Uh, not, that's not to say that there's no responsibility when we acknowledge our societal problems uh, that come from the past misdeeds of our uh, forefathers or foremothers or, uh, you know, our, our past relatives. I think that there is uh, a responsibility to do the right thing. We have some responsibility to bear um, based on the current system because we still benefit from systems of oppression. Uh many of us are still in very privileged positions over others and it shouldn't be that way and there's entire cultures that have had their children stolen and and like this uh situation in Kamloops where they found 215 bodies um underneath uh from a residential school that's obviously like it's not even like that long ago it's not something that's new and it's not something that's entirely stopped like the foster care system here still takes away a lot of uh, children from people under, you know, various rules. Like, I'm not saying that social social workers are uh, intentionally taking away Indigenous children, but there's a lot of rules that are in place that stop Indigenous children from being placed uh, with relatives or with, you know, various other people like there, there's a lot of stuff going on that could be continued considered a continued uh continued genocide and continued oppression for sure um in regards to that and i think like a lot of these ideas about what sin are they ignore stuff like that while then also like villainizing like lgbtqia people uh the gender and sexually diverse community has long been a target of this idea of sin and it just seems absolutely ridiculous right that one like the actual harming of individuals because they're not white is not seen as a sin but people consensually behaving in uh sex or sexual acts with each other is considered a sin like it's just uh, it's a bizarre reasoning like i and i mean obviously as an atheist i i I don't think that it's possible for me to understand this because I don't believe in this being that supposedly made these rules. So it's hard for me to even grasp like how anybody can even reach that level. Like how do you convince yourself that not only does a supreme being who runs the entire universe uh, care about <laughs> these little like people like these people in their daily lives doing things that don't hurt anybody and don't affect anybody except themselves and yet uh these people in his name or her name or its name whatever uh their name (laughs) these other people who wear uh religious garb and are from the catholic church who are doing who are hurting children and discarding their bodies without burial uh without even informing the parents in many cases how can you say that that's you know, not a sin, but maybe it is. Maybe some people would say that's a sin. And and uh, I mean, <laughs> I think if there's such a thing as sin, it's the sin of harming others is the only one, right? Like that's everything that you do that hurts another person, that would fit under that. Like I can't see anything else else that would fit that term. Maybe I'm completely off base here, but anyway, I was not going to ramble on for very long. I just wanted to I've just been thinking about the idea of sin for a while and it's it's a bizarre concept to me and I really I hate it i I just I hate it people existing isn't a sin uh, people loving each other isn't a sin. There was uh, a time when people who were of different races being together would have been considered a sin and that now fuck that like <laughs> uh, that's I mean all of this stuff it's just arbitrary it's all just the people who are bigoted. Using their religion as a cudgel to beat their own bigotry into society. Like they just say, well, I'm a, I don't like gay people. Therefore it's a sin. Well, why should, even if I care what your God thinks, why should I agree with you on what is a sin? Why should I care what your religious belief says at all? We should live in a society where like that's the whole point of like the multicultural society. Is that we all get to have an input and your opinion can be respected up into, up to the point where it's not harming somebody who has a different opinion or a different belief. It's absolute. It's, you don't get to dictate to other people how they live. <laughs> so too bad. But anyway, enough is enough. Uh, that wasn't a very articulate rant anyway. Uh, I hope that, uh, you enjoy this interview with Callie, who is a much more, uh, eloquent person than i am (laughs) so and uh yeah and then i hope you enjoy the book review i will see you in the half i don't i guess i didn't mention this uh now i don't know if there will be any bonus content from this episode there might be a very small amount maybe five minutes from the cali interview and half well maybe 20 minutes from the book review actually uh me and justin talked for quite a while after we stopped recording and my backup was recording, so <laughs> so we. Uh, I'm going to process that and put that out for patrons after. Yeah. There's going to be some a little bonus content from that, but not a lot from the Cali interview. Um, but I hope you enjoy both anyway. Thanks. Hi, and welcome to the Mind of a Skeptical Leftist, the podcast where I promote uh, progressive politics, left-wing philosophy, and critical thinking by talking to a variety of people and uh, getting their ideas out there. Uh, today, I'm talking to Callie Wright from the podcast Queer Queersplaining. Is that, uh, I guess, the best That's way the to one. explain it
1: now? <laughs> That's the one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Formerly uh, the Gaytheist Manifesto, which is when I started listening. Yep. That's a long time ago <laughs> yeah. now.
1: Yeah, God, I was actually just thinking about that the other day. I think it's been like six years, seven years now since I started podcasting. It's yeah, I'm old. It's fine.
0: (laughs) It's awesome. (laughs) It's a it's a great hobby, actually, and Mm -hmm. and I suppose. Well, thankfully for me, it's
1: yeah, yeah. It's part of how I pay the bills now with uh, between my podcast and doing uh, um, freelance work for other clients. So yeah, that's amazing.
0: So. My show is a political show. Um, so, and I wanted to talk to you kind of a bit about, uh, where you are now versus where you used to be. Uh, mm-hmm. but first, I guess a good place is, uh, a little bit of your background for anybody who doesn't already know you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, so I'm a, a queer trans podcaster. Um, uh, you know, like we just said, I've been podcasting for six or seven years now. And originally it was, you know, very specifically, like I wanted to talk about LGBTQ stuff and atheist stuff, like all together, because I had some, some incidents, particularly when I started getting into the queer community where I live. Um, I, I felt very unwelcome there as a person who wasn't religious. Uh, which I was, like, really surprised and really bummed about. <laughs> like, uh, it was, like, being, like, actively proselytized to. And, you know, I I heard a whole lot of the things you hear about how, like, you know, you can only be a good person if you believe in God or, like, that's the yeah. only place that you can find, like, comfort and solace and all of that. And, um, you know, and, and I was – when I got into the whole thing, I noticed, like, you know, lots of these events happen at churches, right? And the practical reason for that is because a lot of times churches will let you use their facilities for free, right? So like, I try to be sympathetic to that. Um, but I figured like, well, okay, this is the queer community, right? Like, even people who are religious are at least gonna be like compassionate towards those of us who are not, especially those of us who are not for like very deeply personal reasons, right? And I was, uh, really bummed to find that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, yeah, I'm and then, yeah and then in the atheist world even like when I first started getting involved and was still really unaware of you know the the domination of like you know street white cis dudes and the the covering up of shitty behavior and all like, even before I was aware of any of that, just on a surface level, I was like, where are all the trans people like I know they exist like why don't they have podcasts or YouTube channels or like run nonprofits <laughs> or whatever? Yeah,
2: for sure.
1: Um, and so like the TLDR version is like those thoughts rolled around a whole bunch. And I was like, okay, so I want to do some kind of activism at this intersection of communities. And, uh, you know, at the time I was listening to a ton of podcasts and I've, I, I have an audio engineering background. Like I went to school to learn how to run recording studios. And so I had all the gear and all the know-how. And so it's like, it just seemed logical. Like, I guess I'll just start a podcast. And that's, sure. um, you know, there's a ton of other details in there, but we'd be here for like an hour if I told you the whole story. <laughs> yeah. um, but that was basically it. And I, I just thought like, wow, there's like a whole lot of stories that aren't being told and a lot of perspectives that aren't being heard. And I'd, you know, like if I'm having this problem, I'm sure I'm not the only one. Um, and, uh, and so that, that's kind of where, where, where my entree into like podcasting and uh, activism and community building and that sort of stuff uh, came from. And then, you know, over time I have grown more interested in uh, the idea and the power of storytelling specifically, uh, as opposed to just like, um, You know, it started as very much a traditional interview style podcast, much like I'm sure we're going to do here, which is great. Like I don't – that's not like (laughs) – I always try to take pains (laughs) to say like I'm not shitting on that medium or that style. (laughs) There are lots of great shows that I listen to and enjoy – um, but I, I just became more interested in the idea of like, I want to hear your story. I want to get to know like you and where you came from and how you got to be where you are and like what we can all learn right. from that kind of thing. Um, and so over time the, my podcasting kind of shifted more in that, uh, as opposed to just doing a straight up interview, it's more like public radio storytelling, uh, type stuff. And then, um, you know, aside from that, I, uh, am a giant Star Trek nerd. Um, <laughs> sort of an intermediate Klingon speaker. Uh, When it's not pandemic times, I play roller derby, and I like coffee and dogs a whole lot. So that's like the TLDR, Cali, in a nutshell.
0: (laughs) That's perfect. (laughs) I guess, uh, like, uh, thinking about your show, the way you do it with the storytelling, like, that's so... Mm -hmm like as a talking shop perspective, it's so much editing Mm -hmm. and in depth. Uh, like that's why I don't do that type of show because it's so (laughs) intensive.
1: (laughs) And and honestly, I'm, I'm very fortunate. Um, because I, I am able to do the show that way specifically because I have enough support on Patreon that I can treat it like part of my job. Uh, you know, I, I block out a day, sometimes two days of like full work day, to put the show together. Um, Cause like, you know, sometimes I do monologue episodes and those are usually half to three quarters of a day worth of writing. And then maybe another half a day to full day of like recording and editing and mixing and stuff. Right. Um, but the shows where I do an interview with someone else and I'm cutting it into a story, sometimes I can spend 30 or 40 hours just in the edit yeah. um, for, you know, for, for an hour to an hour and a half long interview. And it's, you know it is it's a ton of work but it's uh it's really creatively fulfilling like that's the kind of stuff that i sort of most enjoy listening to like as a listener right. um and it's also just really creatively fulfilling to put together and you know just like pulling in all of the best parts of someone's story and really um because you know most of the people that i talk to are not people who are on podcasts a lot right there's like, there's no media training there's no experience right, right? and so People are usually like really nervous and they like start sentences over and there's lots of flubs and that kind of stuff. And it's also like really personally fulfilling to me to be able to like take that person's story, put it into a way that's easy for other people to understand and hand it back to that person because that's the other person saying like, Oh man, like I don't think I've ever been able to tell my story that well to another person. Um, And that's really cool for me. It's, it's sort of a way for me to, to help out like the person that I'm interviewing and the folks who listen, because I feel like everyone kind of gets something out of it. And Mm -hmm. that's, um, you know, there's, there's a, a, a political aspect to that, right? Because a lot of what you hear about in the like audio making world and podcasting is extractive storytelling, right? So like, you know, you go, you know, you, you parachute into a place, you fly in on a plane, you talk to this person, you have zero idea of the cultural context they come from. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're a cis person interviewing a trans person, a white person interviewing a black person, that kind of stuff. You have no idea where this person comes from, where their background is. And all you're thinking is how do I get the story out of this person and put it in a way that's going to get the most clicks, the most, right. you know, ad revenue, <laughs> like that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, um, you know, that, one of the reasons I stopped being a fan of capitalism, which I'm sure we'll get into is, you know, obviously that's the drive, right? You want clicks and you want listens. Um, but like what I'm interested in is like what someone's actual story is. And right. you know, the mainstream, I gotta hate using this phrase, the mainstream media, <laughs> uh, like what other phrases there? Right. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, like the, the major news outlets, all oh, they do such a bad job telling trans stories. And it's because, one, they're usually only uh, – if it's focused on a trans person, they only talk to that one trans person. The reporter is a cis person with zero cultural competence. And the editors are thinking about the audience, which is not trans people. Right. And you put all of those things together and you get stories that focus only on the hardship and they focus only on like – This, it was, this person's life was miserable and they wanted to die. And then they had surgery and now life is great. And that's like the only trans narrative we ever hear. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I think it's, that's. You know, it's definitely a like, sometimes we laugh so we don't cry kind of thing, but that also like legitimately does a really bad disservice to the yeah. public discourse and the way that the broader society views trans people. And so that's what I try to do is it's to to kind of solve that problem. Like a trans person, obviously, like I'm white, I'm middle class, so I don't have a perfect understanding of everyone's perspectives, but I do uh, understand what the extractive storytelling model looks like. And I'm actively working to subvert that model as the right way to tell people's stories. And it's because like, I, I know what it's like to be on the receiving end of that. And so it's really important to me that I don't do that for other people. Uh, and, and I think that's why people, uh, trans folks, especially why they glom onto the show because I don't do that kind of storytelling.
0: Yeah. Like, That's one of those things where they talk about uh, representation in media, right? Like, that's Mm -hmm. why it's important for Indigenous peoples to cover Indigenous uh, cultural stories or so that they're not just, you know, a white dude going into a reserve and being like, hey, look at all these people suffering from alcoholism. Must be Mm -hmm. a thing
1: with Natives, uh, (laughs) you know? And and, and even... (laughs) You know, as a person not part of a community, to make a serious commitment to understanding that community even. Right. You know what I mean? Because, like, in the grand scheme of things, I don't think it is impossible for a cis person to tell a good trans story. Right. It's right. just that the way media generally works is not conducive to that. Because, right. um, like, I, I mean, I've heard it done. I listened to – um there's a, a show called The Cut where they did an interview with Tori Peters, the author of the the book, Transit Detransition Baby. And okay. the host of that is a cis person. But she still did a fantastic interview. And I can tell she really knew what she was talking about, right? Um, the problem, obviously, <laughs> being a trans person doing trans stories, that's that's going to get you there, right? But what frustrates me is that I don't Actually think it would be that difficult for cis people to tell good trans (laughs) stories if they really, really decided they wanted to. Like, cause all you gotta do is just like, do the reading, do the work, get to know people, talk to people. It's like, it's not even really that hard. And I think that's part of the reason that's, it's part of what's so frustrating for me. It's like, we're not, we're not this like complicated lockbox that you can't get into. Right. Like we're just, so many of us are just sitting here waiting for people to be like, Hey, can I talk to you about a thing? And so many people are just like not interested in doing that. It's very frustrating.
0: <laughs> it's, it's yeah. It's interesting actually. Cause there always seems to be the motivation for them to like embed themselves with QAnon or mm-hmm. uh, white nationalists. You'll see these in-depth like docu-series about these people that, Okay. Mm -hmm. So you got to know them and you figured out their backstory and you did all the research. And why can't you do that with marginalized groups?
1: (laughs) Right. And that's, that's a fantastic question. And and I think, I don't know, that's that's a very, very multifaceted answer to that question. And I'm, you know, I'm not an expert in journalism. (laughs) I didn't go to school or anything, but like, I have a lot of journalist friends. I have a lot of trans journalist friends and they've spent a lot of time educating me on these problems. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, that's, you know, how many articles did we see about, like, oh, like, we've, we've still got to work to understand why someone voted for Trump, even though they all say the same, like, five things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, what we I actually mean? know
0: why.
1: Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, this is not uh, some burning question that we don't have the answer to. And it's the same thing with QAnon. Like, they're out there telling you exactly, like, they're not, they're, <laughs> wrong and evil and terrible but what they are not doing is hiding their motivations. Yeah, right? that's right.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's uh strange strange media these days. Like you say I hate using the term mainstream media cuz it's so destroyed by I guess Trump and the right but Yeah. Also, what else are they <laughs> like that's literally right. what I mean are. that that
1: is <laughs> that is exactly what it is. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's honestly gotten to the point where most major news outlets when they do a trans thing, I just don't read it or pay attention to it anymore. Um, like I just saw, this is Caitlyn Jenner running for governor of California, which is just, I mean, first of all, doomed to fail, right? Like there's no way she's actually going to have any success in that, um, but like immediately, people are like prominent transgender activist Caitlyn Jenner. No, she's not. <laughs> she's she's a lot of things. She is not a transgender activist. Like you yeah, don't even right. have to dislike her to say that. Like that's just not a thing she is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and it's and it's because she's a in Republican. society. Well, and, and and it's it comes back to the idea that like if you are an out trans person of any prominence, you're automatically seen as an activist. Um, right. which like. Yeah. Even if I loved Caitlyn Jenner, I wouldn't call her an activist. That's just not a thing she does. No, that's right. <laughs> and again, it's really easy to not fuck that up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty basic. Even that one's really basic. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. Kind of to shift gears a little bit. Um, like I say, I, I kind of wanted to talk to you about your, your uh, change in Mm -hmm. Uh, political views so where what do you identify as politically now
1: i would say i'm a leftist and i i I don't know that i have a deep enough understanding of theory to apply a more specific label than that um and that's okay i don't necessarily feel like i need to um and and this is a (laughs) actually i think my gender journey has informed a lot of this in saying that like I can tell you with very – I can tell you with like 100% uncertainty a whole lot of things I'm not. I'm not 100% sure I can tell you exactly what I am if that makes sense. Yeah, that's Um, fair. You know, So when I first became politically aware, I think my politics as a – like tween, teenager, late teens, early 20s, I really think my politics were just contrarian more than anything. It was just that idea that like – well, if it's mainstream, it's probably wrong, and I'm cool enough that I figured that out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um and, and I was I was definitely I used to be oh god, this is embarrassing. I used to be like a family guy edge lord kind of person. Um I was one of those like I'm not racist, but I'm not sexist, but kind of people uh yeah. not proud of having been that way, but that's <laughs> where I was. And <laughs> You know, as time went on, I think I, uh, I, I started to become more of probably like a mainstream liberal, uh, in that like I recognized like, okay, yeah, like systemic racism is a thing. Sexism is a thing. I don't like any of that. Like everybody should be treated equally. That's cool. Um, of the people I hear speaking politically, Democrats seem to be mostly on that side. So I think maybe that's where I'm at. Um, and that was like, early to mid twenties, I kind of went into that mode and I lived there until I figured out I was trans. Uh, and, and this is part of the reason that I try to give people a little grace when they're coming from a fucked up place politically is that like, given my background, given the environment that I grew up in, I'm not hundred percent sure that I would have come to the place politically where I am if I wasn't trans. Um, because I started to learn about trans issues and, uh, the, the systemic issues therein. And so I would have those arguments and those conversations with people. And then I would start to see the parallels with other axes of oppression. Right. And so like, obviously transphobia and racism, for example, not the same thing, but really? the way people on the wrong sides of those issues argue has a lot of similarity in it. Like they are similar yeah. themes, right? And so I would see that and think like, oh, wait a minute, that actually sounds familiar to me. And, um, so what I did is I just, I joined a bunch of leftist Facebook groups, uh, like, like sort of <laughs> like good. specifically, uh, specifically like feminist, leftist, atheist type Facebook groups. And, uh, I didn't interact much. I just kind of like looked at the discourse and saw what people were saying and, um, you know, blog articles, people would link to and that kind of stuff. And that started to push me further and further left. And I think, um, I was sort of a, until probably two or three years ago, I would have called myself maybe like a leftist pragmatist, um, like, like. In an ideal world, here's what I would want, but we have to deal with reality, so here's what we can get right. kind of thing
0: yeah
1: um and then you know, probably within the last year and a half to two years, I would say I've gone pretty pretty hardcore left uh in terms of like I'm a police and prison abolitionist, um I'm like hundred percent in favor of like seizing and redistributing wealth. <laughs> And, uh, you know, and those sorts of things. And so, like, you know, like what I know of communism appeals to me. I'm not sure that I know enough about the theory to say like 100 percent like I'm on board with that label. Um, And and, I mean, also, like communism is also a million different things. Right. There's like a ton of subheadings under communism and different, uh, you know, different ways that, you know, because communism is the ideal and the disagreement usually is how we get there. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um and, and I don't I'm not super, super familiar with all of the varying theories and how that works. <laughs> um I, I would still call myself a pragmatist in that um I think I think it's worth fighting for ideas that seem impossible because like all of the progress that we take for granted now seemed impossible at one point or another, right? Yeah, that's right. Um but what I can't forget is that, like, there are people out on the streets there right now suffering. And if I can take action that helps that even a little bit, I should still probably do that, even if it's not hashtag the revolution. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and that's where, uh, lots of leftist discourse leaves me behind a little bit. Um, because I, I get the sense among a lot of leftist groups that they don't feel like activism is worth doing if it's not directly contributing to the hashtag revolution. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I can't, I can't get on board with that. Right. Um, and, and that's not to say that I don't think it's a good idea. And it's not something that like, I would be happy to contribute to and help be a part of. Um, But, but like I said, I just, I, there's, I live very much in the today. Like, what about today? What about tomorrow? You know, where are these people's meals going to come from tomorrow? Like, where is right. the roof over their head going to be tomorrow? And if we can apply pressure anywhere to make that position better in the here and now for today and for tomorrow, we should probably be doing that, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, you know, whatever label that is.
0: <laughs> that's Yeah. <what I> <laughs> sure uh yeah i'm not sure what exactly you want to pin that down as (laughs) that's perfect i uh i just saw something the other day or maybe it was even earlier today where like there was a homeless encampment uh and rather than rush these people out of their encampment uh the community built tiny little houses for them Mm -hmm. I, i mean it's it's not It didn't solve the overall issues, but it gave them a roof over their head that's permanent that they can call an address Mm -hmm. that solves a small problem and doesn't technically contribute to the hashtag revolution. Right.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, and that's, you know, and, and there's probably some debate to be had there, right? Because like there's, you know, the idea of like building parallel power, reducing your dependence on the state. So the state eventually crumbles, uh, yeah. you know, so the, the idea being that you don't need some violent revolution. You just build enough parallel power that the state becomes unnecessary and crumbles on its own. And so that's like the revolution that is not like people with AK-47s on the street gunning down the bourgeoisie, right? <laughs> right?
0: Um, yeah, it's and, like mutual aid networks. And-
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I I love... I love that kind of stuff, and that's why, like, you know, that's why, like, I give money to like mutual aid food groups all the time because I think that's like direct activism that's going to make people's lives better in the here and now, today. And yeah. like, I'm not rich, but I'm comfortable, and I've got a little bit of extra to throw around here and there. And that's usually what I end up doing is I just like find a mutual aid group that says they're struggling and just like send them fifty bucks or whatever.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. The uh, yeah, it's stuff like that, like that. The comments underneath that article that I was looking at, there's a number of leftists who are going, well, this isn't enough. This isn't enough. This isn't enough. And Mm -hmm. I agree a wholeheartedly. Right. Mm -hmm. But I also want to be able to acknowledge that this is a good thing that we're, you know, Mm -hmm. as a community that they got together and gave people tiny houses, Tiny's not great. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) location might not be great, but it's, I don't know. It seems weird to call this not enough all the time. And without ever saying like,
1: yeah, this is also a positive thing. Yeah. And and that's the struggle for me, right? Because we know that part of the reason progressive reforms happen is to keep the pressure just far enough away that the system maintains itself, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's when, (laughs) and I, I am not an accelerationist, but in moments like that, I at least kind of understand where they're coming from. You know what I mean? Like, like that's never going to be a thing that I advocate because that will entail horrific suffering and death. (laughs) But like, (laughs) conceptually, I get it, right? Like, the idea is that if you keep things from becoming bad enough, then we get to maintain the status quo, people keep suffering, and we still call that progress when it's really not. And like, I can't disagree with any of that, right? Like, that is all correct. But I, I would feel very comfortable saying that almost every person who benefited from that would say like, yes, this is a good thing. I'm very glad this happened. And like that person's life is now better for that. And I just, I I can't, I can't write that off. That's just not a thing that I'm ever going to be able to bring myself to do. I I don't, yeah, I I don't, that, that doesn't fit in with my, with my politics.
0: Yeah. It's, it's similar. I find to like, there's multiple very good arguments against uh, like a universal basic income uh but yeah. mm-hmm. one one of those arguments is that it just placates people while you know while the rich get richer and we don't you don't know, we don't expropriate the means of production
1: <laughs> right well, and also because so many models of ubi are about like very basic subsistence and survival, right yeah it's it's not something that really allows people to go out and live a life. it is enough to allow people to survive, and those are two right. different concepts and and again survival is a whole lot better than what a lot of people are doing right now. And, uh, and so again, that's where I come. That's where I come back to that argument. And it's just that, uh, that's, it's a really hard one for me. So
0: you have uh, had, uh, I guess you've had like one main show, uh, one show, or I guess episode, one main episode on your show about socialism.
1: Uh, Mm -hmm. are you
0: exploring, are you going to be exploring that a bit more?
1: Yeah, I don't know about on the show um, just because that's – like political education is not something that I focus so much on on the show. Now, not that I don't think it's important. I just don't think that's what I do. Um, right. I, I did that one episode because I thought it was an important thing for people to get primed on um because it does i mean obviously like the well-being of all marginalized people is something that is informed by those sorts of politics right um and so on a personal level it's definitely something i'm exploring more uh but like <laughs> right. on the show unless that is part of some larger story i'm not sure that there will be much if anything more on the show about it so much um that's understandable Aside from like, like I would love to do like an on the ground profile of an activist and like what they do and what their life is about. You know what I mean? But the profile would be more about like, why this person does what they do, who they are, what they're about, than a specific like, this is their political philosophy. And this is, you know what I mean?
0: Right, right. Not an exploration of the uh, direct philosophy, but more of the story, like you say. (laughs)
1: Which I've honestly, I like, I've thought about doing a separate thing like that, because that's honestly how I learn the best. Um, Because like reading political theory turns my brain to mush, honestly, like I've got tons of books uh, on my iPad and on my bookshelf (laughs) about (laughs) political theory. And I just, I can't, I'm not that good at following it. But if I talk to somebody who really knows their shit, then it's really easier for me, especially because, you know, if I, if I read something in a theory book and it doesn't make sense to me, then I have to like run to the computer and Google and read a bunch of different perspectives. (laughs) But like, if I have a person sitting in front of me who I know really knows their shit, I can ask questions and I can ask for clarification and that kind of stuff. Um, and especially my my buddy Will, the Star Trek communist is, he's great. And I've thought about like, Hey Will, do you want to do like a weekly webcast. Cause like, that'd be awesome. (laughs) Well, yeah. And my, so my problem is like on a grand scale, I don't have a ton of extra time in my life. Right. (laughs) Um, so like I wouldn't really be able to do preparing. So I would literally just be like, okay, we're going to get that together at like 6 PM every Thursday and just like go on YouTube live and just talk about it for a minute. Um, like that's what it would have to be. And I don't, know that I would feel good about that because I like when I'm going to do something like that I feel the need to prepare and like think about questions and that kind of stuff so yeah I don't I don't know we'll see
0: the time probably isn't there
1: (laughs) yeah that's what I just yeah even even during pandemic times and I feel like I don't know I feel like a lot of us know what it's like to actually end up working more during the pandemic than before and that's that's 100% my uh, and, and like, that's not meant as like a humble bragger to be dismissive. Cause I know a lot of people have the opposite problem and it's a very serious one. Um, but yeah, I have, I, I have actually been more busy in the last year or so than I was before.
0: Yeah. Like I went from working in the oil field for then to doing gig work and mm-hmm. I had to work just to make even a little bit close to what I was making in the oil field. Like the gig work hours you got to put in, you basically don't have mm-hmm. any extra time. You said for counter propaganda, you wanted to cover uh, the issue of trans people in sports <laughs> mm. <laughs> because this is something that is apparently everywhere right now.
1: <laughs> yeah. And that, that's almost literally true. Like so many states have stuff either in progress or past uh, or like in committee. Uh, I forget the number. I want to say it was like 44 states or something wild like that um have a bill in some stage whether it's like in committee or co- like coming up for a vote or on the governor's desk or whatever um yeah i <laughs> there's a whole we could probably take up another 2 or 3 hours with this topic alone <laughs> um but like i come at this from two different angles the first being uh it's just so obviously creating a problem so you can propose the solution using a group of marginalized people that the public knowledge is very small about, right? Um, so even now at this point, I would say most people's awareness of trans stuff is the awareness that trans people exist. And that's like as far as the knowledge goes, right? And so there's just so much blank space to be filled up with information in the public consciousness about trans stuff. And as the right is wont to do, they recognize that, as a chance to fear and gain support by saying like, yes, these people are the enemy. These people are dangerous and we have your solution. And right. that's to stop kids from getting healthcare, keep trans people out of sports, keep trans people out of the bathrooms, all of that sort of stuff. Right. Um, and so, and, and so like to summarize, that's like the first problem is that like, this is simply not actually a problem for anyone except conceptually. <laughs> Right. Um yeah. it is just factually and ethically incorrect. Um completely emotionally removing myself from the context of the situation. Um but the second side of this is that I can't completely remove myself of uh of the emotional context of the situation, not only because I'm trans, but also because I'm an athlete. I play roller derby, right. And um, you know, I, I, I respect anyone's level of love or involvement for sports, whether it's their entire life or they couldn't care less. Um, I never considered myself a person that was very into sports at all, except when I was in like middle school and early high school. And, uh, sports didn't really appeal to me. A lot of like football fans, soccer fans, basketball fans, whatever it's what you're into. I love and respect it. I don't care about it. And I got into roller derby, uh, long story short, it was like, I like exercising, but I don't like exercise. Um, and so, like, if I want to keep doing that, I should probably find a sport. And, you know, the only sport that I had a hope of being welcome in was roller derby. And so I checked it out and, uh, like, turns out being an athlete, athleticism and team sports in the way that it works, at least in my experience, is something that has been, like, deeply, deeply meaningful and formative to me as a human being. And, uh, legitimately my, um, my friend group is roller derby. Uh, I've, I've learned a lot of self-confidence because of roller derby. Um, you know, and like I, I put on skates and hit people. Right. And I'm, I really suck at this, but I'm going to try this new thing anyways. And, oh my God, I figured it out. Like there's so much, uh, confidence and self-love and, uh, that can come from that. And it's, it's turned out to mean a lot more to me than I ever thought it would. Uh, I imagined that it was like, yeah, I'll make some friends. I'll have some fun. I'll stay strong and stay in shape and it'll be a cool hobby. And it took like no time at all for it to become one of the most important things in my life. And I think for people who want them, team sports are not just a fun thing that you do like on the weekends or whatever. It's something that is deeply important and deeply meaningful. And you learn so much about yourself and how to interact with the world. And the idea that there's such this Herculean effort to deny that, uh, not just to adults, but to kids, right? Like, I mean, I'm an adult, a middle-class adult. So like, generally I can, you know, I can go like have a drink at a bar instead of playing sports and I can make friends that way, you know? Um, but there are lots of people for whom, like, team sports are going to be the only way that's accessible for them. Like, if you go to public school and you don't have to pay a lot of money to, to play the sport, like, that's something that your, your life can, can really seriously suffer from being denied if it's a thing that you want. And the idea that they want to keep people out and expel people currently involved. Um, I just think about what my life would be like. If I knew I didn't have that anymore. And I mean, the, the pandemic has taught me that a little bit, right? Because the entire world stops, obviously putting on skates and hitting people. <laughs> isn't going to be, uh, something that you do during the pandemic. Uh, and, and I know how much it's gutted me to have that taken from me, even on a temporary basis, right? Like barring something absolutely wild, I will put on skates and hit my friends again. Uh, and, and so like, I have that knowledge. Um, but I know how much it gutted me to have that taken away from me and not to be able to do that and not to be able to see my friends and not to be able to learn those like really important life lessons and have those amazing experience, uh, that, that sports can provide. And it is absolutely utterly heartbreaking to me to know that like there are people who are like at risk of having that denied to them and, and, and are, I mean, some of these laws have actually been passed into law. And of course, I mean, you know, the ACLU will do their thing, but like, You know, good thing we've got the Supreme Court, right? Womp, womp. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm coming at it from an angle of like, it's just like factually wrong and silly. And also that it's like deeply personal to me and that I am a trans athlete. And the idea of that being denied just kills me. Um, and so I guess the, the counter propaganda to that is to just like look at the information and listen to doctors. Like if you, if you look at the hearings, um, that people have been uh, going through, so many of these politicians were asked like, okay, so like how many transgender athletes are there in your state? Well, I'm not actually like fully aware of, okay, so like how many of these problems have been reported? Well, I'm not actually, oh, like it's just, it's not, it's not a thing. It's not a problem. And if, if you look at the science. Everybody says they follow the science and lots of people don't follow the science. Um, but all, you know, and all that's to say as well, like what's really important to know about this is that like they're choosing to go after us in this time because we're an easy target at the moment and we're uh more vulnerable. But, you know, it, it's, you know, at first it was like, well, it's just about like keeping kids away from health concerns. Um, which Mm -hmm. is bullshit. But they said that's all it was about. And now all of a sudden, it's sports too. And then uh, there's a bill, I forget what what state it's in, that uh, will make it uh, illegal for insurance to cover trans stuff, even if an insurance company wants to cover trans stuff. And there was a a state considering a law uh, where they would have to put warning signs on the bathrooms to say that trans people are allowed to use these bathrooms. And then... (laughs) You know, the idea is it is not going to stop wherever they say, like, well, it's just about this, it's not going to stop there, right? Like, they're absolutely going to come after marriage rights again. Uh, they're setting the stage for that. Yeah. And so, like, if you're a queer who thinks the fight ended with marriage equality, um, which we don't actually have marriage equality, that's a whole other thing. Lots of disabled people can't get married because of SSI benefits. Look it up. Um, but like, they're going to come after marriage rights. They're going to, they're going to keep chipping away just like they have with abortion. Um, so yeah, that's my, that's my very long rant.
0: Uh, I guess uh, my thoughts on, uh, on the transport sports, uh, issue and, uh, the transgender, uh, kind of limitations, uh, that they're trying to impose. It's, it just seems a continuation of, like you say, a problem that doesn't actually exist. like, the first time i ever heard of uh, a trans person in sports was on the joe rogan show which is not a good place <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah yeah nothing good happens at that place
0: <laughs> but he he actually for the for he actually had somebody push back against his what he was saying like mm-hmm. there was a, he had a trans person on whose name i cannot recall um and every time he would be like yeah but men are this way and women are this way <laughs> and they would be like no no,
1: <laughs> no, that's not right. <laughs> well, I actually have a really funny story about that. If we have time to share, um, sure. so, <laughs> I'm not going to name names of anyone involved because I genuinely believe this person was ac- asking because he didn't know. Um, and so I don't want to like dime them out and like put them out there. Like I'm trying to make fun of them or tear him down or anything like that. So not naming names. Uh, and I won't even say where or when this happened. Uh, Did but I- at a con- at a convention, I was approached by someone, um, th- this was a convention in which I had uh, a forward-facing role, I was a person on stage, and this person, uh, seeing me in that role, said like, hey, do you know where this other speaker is? I wanted to ask them a question, and this was someone who had given a talk about trans stuff. Um, and I I happened to know who he was asking about. And I was like, no, actually, you know what? Like they're, their plane left this morning. They had to go home, family stuff, something like that. Um, I was like, but if you wanted to ask about trans stuff, I'm trans and like you can ask me your questions if you want. Um, but like if you want to ask them specifically a question, like no sweat on that either. And so he went ahead to ask me the question and he, he was asking about, uh, trans people in sports. And he did that sort of like you know well, like men are like this, and men are like this, and men are like this and it, pointing out the very obvious like you know bigger bone structure, bigger hands, a thicker skull, whatever you know that kind of stuff that they say <laughs> right the things and they then say, yeah. and then he, he turns around and he points to this person and says like, okay, but this person over here, he's pointing to this person as the proto- the, the, the the sort of prototypical uh, woman form or shape and or size okay. and was pointing out all of the ways that like by his perception, uh this person is just like naturally at a disadvantage to someone like him. And what he apparently didn't know about this person is that this person was a trans woman that he was pointing to. <laughs> well, and so that this could have been was a very
0: educational moment. <laughs>
1: And again, I'm not going to name any names at all, because I, I I tell this story not to shame this person, but to right. legitimately say, like, we need to rethink what we think. Um, but I, I say that to say that um, the person who was asking the question should have known this person was a trans woman, because they're a trans woman in a rather prominent position, uh, where I was like, is he really pointing to... like? she's a trans woman and he doesn't know that like very publicly a trans woman. Um, and so, and, and I said what, what I've repeated here all my whole time. I was like, well, let me blow your mind for a second. I'm not giving away any secrets (laughs) here, but like this person here, like she is a trans woman and he he was, he seemed legitimately taken aback. Um, and I, I was trying really hard. Like I, I, I'm not trying to beat you up or like do a gotcha moment kind of thing but like, I really hope that this has been an eye opener in terms of re-examining your assumptions about people. And he, uh, he, he really seemed thoughtful. He seemed to really take it in. Um, and, and then I had, I had a occasion to excuse myself from the conversation. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the, a, a good friend of mine had walked by a few minutes before and was like, hey, Callie, when you get a second, and he like, pointed that direction, like, hey, I'm going to be at my table, come talk to me in a, uh, for a second. And I was like, yeah, cool. And I took that opportunity to be like, oh, yeah, like, I'm going to go see what he wanted. I got to be on stage in a couple of minutes. Uh, <laughs> so I, I had gotten that out. Um, but he he really seemed to, that that seemed to be an eye-opening moment for him. Um, and so, so yes, it it is high time for many, many people to rethink their uh, assumptions and biases <laughs> on the topic. Yeah.
0: I don't know. It's one of those things. Like I have always ever since I got into bodybuilding, actually like back mm-hmm. in my early thirties, I was, I would always hear the, you know, the typical standard guy thing, all oh, that. I, I don't think she's good looking. She looks too much like a man type right. of nonsense. And I always disagreed with it. I was like, this is a person who put in all this work to build these muscles and do <laughs> like right. this. Like, even when I was like, I wasn't a, 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 what, what they might call a woke person, but it it just didn't make any sense to me that, you know, you're limiting men and women in these various ways. And, and I mean, now, obviously, I don't even think that gender should be part of the discussion around
1: sports really. (laughs) Well, I, I I think there are reasons for it to be a discussion, (laughs) but, uh, Uh, What I will say is it's, it's a bit lengthy and there's no way I'd be able to recite it from memory, but (laughs) the, uh, the WFTDA, the women's flat track derby association, uh, they're the, the governing body for the roller derby uh, group of leagues that I play in. Uh, They have, uh, they call it a gender statement that is sort of about the WFTDA's philosophy uh, about gender inclusion. And, um, you know, I, I don't know that it's perfect and I don't think anything ever would be, right. but it's about as close as I could possibly imagine to a position statement on gender in sports. Um, and so, like, if you just literally Google the phrase WFTDA gender statement and it'll come up, it'll be the first thing.
0: Okay. Yeah. No, I, I will even do that for everybody and put it in the show notes. <laughs>
1: there you go. Yeah, yes, I'm am I'm a I'm a fan.
0: <laughs> because uh yeah we all need to be a little bit more informed on uh this subject
1: <laughs> so and, and god my thing is like why wouldn't you want to be like yeah. you know the I, I think the political reasons are the most important in that it like has directly to do with the well-being of people and that's always got to be at the top of the priority list Yeah. um but also like how the hell boring is your life if you're not trying to understand where other people come from. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. You know what I mean? Yeah.
0: Yeah, Like, uh, well, or even to just actually be informed on a subject that you want to have an opinion on. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Like if, if nothing else, just be informed on what you're saying. Absolutely. (laughs) Okay. So where can people find your content?
1: Uh, best thing to do is, uh, you can go to queersplaining.com. That's the, the podcast, uh, the website where my podcast lives. Um, but I also don't really know anyone that actually goes to podcast websites. Like almost <laughs> everyone has their, almost everyone has their podcast app of choice and you should be able to find queersplaining in it. <laughs> yeah, that's um, right. and then other than that I'm at Callie gets it on Twitter. I do lots of Star Trek shit posting, uh, lots of yelling about, um, queer and trans stuff and, uh, occasionally speaking in Klingon.
0: So is there anything you'd like to mention before we go?
1: Uh, no, I think we covered it. I talk a deadly. lot. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> nope, that's deadly.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for joining me.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: All right. So that's it for the interview. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to uh, get that last five minutes of uh, the discussion with Callie, then you can go to patreon.com slash skeptical leftist and become a patron or email me. Uh, mind of a skeptical leftist at gmail.com and I will send you uh, the audio file or a link to the unlisted video so that you can go and uh, watch that extra five minutes. And now I take you over to the book review with Justin Clark. Hi and welcome to uh, Red Reviews episode number four. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> Uh, I just finished processing the uh, work we did with Michael Parenti's book, Inventing Reality. Uh, It was really – it's a really good review. I think people should watch it. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm looking forward to this week's. I think we're going to talk about something that's uh, relevant to current events.
2: Yes. So as I think many of your listeners probably know over the last few weeks – um, we have seen the continued bombardments against the Palestinian people um, by the state of Israel. And recently, as I think even today, um, President Biden, Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, met with President Benjamin Netanyahu about, um, about policies going forward and, and so on and so forth. And so I thought because this is so fresh on people's minds, you know, the sort of the movement for Palestine and the sort of uh, egregious crimes of Israel over the last you know few weeks mm-hmm. um, to sort of read a book that would be relevant to the discussion that provides, I think, much needed, um, not only historical context, but also, um, I think, some theoretical understanding as well. And with that in mind, um, uh, we're going to be talking tonight about um, Edward Said's The Question of Palestine. Um, which is a classic work. This was published, I think, in the late 1970s, uh, 1979. This edition was published in 1992 with a couple extra um, uh, selections of writing where he kind of updates and talks about, you know, sort of the developments post-1979. So while the book is slightly dated, there's actually quite a bit in it that, reads like you could have ripped it out of it the pages of the book, put it into the context of what we're talking about today and it would fit. Like Largely it. because the Israeli Palestinian conflict, as the media often likes to talk about it, um when in reality what it is, is it's it's a um it's a conflict in and of itself only only in as much as the media wants to paint it as one, because it isn't really so much a conflict so much as it is um, right. a, a settler colonialism issue, which we'll get into. Um, but to give you some give you some background, so Edward Said was the professor of comparative literature at Columbia, okay. and and uh, he also taught at Harvard, Johns Hopkins. Um, he is best known probably for his incredibly pathbreaking work, um, Orientalism, which came out a few years after this book. Um, okay, I recently listened to an interview of his where he talked about how this book. Um, the question, the question of Palestine, um, is sort of a part of an informal trilogy of books that he wrote on these questions. Orientalism, the question of Palestine, in a book he wrote called Covering Islam, which is a which is interesting because that book is very much kind of like the last book we talked about, where it's a critique of the media in relationship to covering Islam, and, uh-huh. con- and particularly covering the Muslim world, um, which in and of itself is sort of a broad generalization. So Saeed was born in Palestine, um, in the 1930s and he died in 2003 after a long bout with cancer. Mm. Um, those of you who've probably heard his name, who are maybe in the atheist, humanist circles, probably know about, um, the very public break that the late author Christopher Hitchens had with Edward Saeed over the question of, um, uh, islamism as or or islamo-fascism as hitchens called it hitchens was a early sort of celebrator of saeed's work and then post 9 11 they have this very public break Mm -hmm. um which which goes in line with a lot of what happens with hitchens (laughs) yeah (laughs) um as his political shift right because so what he does in this book is he does a couple of things one of them is that he provides historical context for understanding where The Israeli-Palestinian conflict comes from, and ultimately, what it has meant for Palestinians. So he talks about how there have been numerous books about Israel from the Israeli perspective, keeping their concerns in mind. But at the time, there weren't as many books written in the English language that explicitly dealt with the issue of Palestine and and from the standpoint of Palestinians. Okay, so um, I think this is incredibly. Brilliant work. Uh, I, I It's the first book of his I'd ever read. Um, he has a, a, a long list of books that are incredibly influential in the field of post-colonial studies. Obviously, I mentioned Orientalism. The other book that's really important is a book called Culture and Imperialism. And uh, and he's done public lectures and stuff you can probably watch on YouTube. Um, Definitely have but to check he, some of those out. Yeah, for sure. And um, And so – being born in Palestine, he he came to the United States um as as one of many people who became a part of the sort of Palestinian diaspora, which at the publishing of this book was around four million people. Today it's actually closer to around six million people. Okay. And there and he talks about how Palestinians around the world are sort of divided into different groups. So you have those who always lived within Israel proper. Then there were those who lived in the sort of Palestinian territories, okay. um, and then there were those who left. Um, some, some by choice, mostly not by choice, um, and those people ended up going into countries like Jordan, Syria, the United States, um, the UK, other parts of Europe. Um, and so, interestingly enough, much like the Jewish diaspora, which still exists to this day, I think the... Global population of Jewish people is like 20 million or something like that, and again, they're scattered all over the world. Okay. with sort of a hub in Israel. Um, Palestine is the same. The Palestinians are sort of the same way, although that they're less. So that's an important understanding to think about: is that that the Palestine, the Palestinians at this point are essentially a people without a state. So they don't have an actual right. like state for them to live in, to have legal protections under, to have rights from. Often what you'll hear in referring to Gaza is people call it the world's largest open air prison because it's essentially an occupied territory that has been occupied since um, 1948 when Israel was created. So before I get more into more detail, I think it's important to provide listeners with some additional context. So where did this come from? Why why is there, why is there Palestine? Why, are, why is there Israel? Why is all this going on? Well, with much of modern history, the development of the State of Israel can many ways be tied to World War I. So, and I think we talked about right. this last time. Now the concept now the concept of Zionism itself goes back to the mid-19th century, if not earlier, but as a specific explicit political project. It's about mid-19th century and particularly picks up steam with the 1880s and 90s. Um, But World War I is the moment. So before World War I, the land that was known as Palestine, which is known today as Israel and parts of it that are the occupied territories that make up what people think of as Palestine, were part of what was called the Ottoman Empire. And when the Ottoman Empire collapsed during World War I, largely as a result of the British Empire, guaranteeing certain countries independence in exchange for fighting on their side. Turkey is probably the most notable example of this. Okay, yeah. Um, we have Kemal Ataturk and, and so forth. They were called the Young Turks, which is most people think of Chank Uger now, but that's where that comes right. from. And so – When Palestine uh, became a sort of independent region of its own, and I say independent with really big scare quotes because it's not really independent, um, but separate from the Ottoman Empire, um, it becomes essentially a a colony of the British Empire. And it's governed by the British from around 1920 till 1948. So the most, I think striking chapter of the book and the one that's probably the most controversial in this discussion is a book is, is the chapter called Zionism from the standpoint of its victims mm-hmm. so the history of Zionism as a political project um, is tied to one of its founders, a guy named Theodor Herzl there were other very influential Zionist political uh, philosophers and leaders like um, um, Chaim Weitzman Joseph Weitz Theater Herzl I mentioned earlier. So there was a slew of these guys. And the, and I think it's important, and this is what I really want to stress, because this is something I wanted to stress the last time. One of the things that I think is a problem in our political discourse is there's often an, a, a sort of conflating of, of Zionism with Judaism. Right, yeah. And those are not the same thing. But the problem is, is that the way that mainstream discourse handles both of them is it kind of treats them as interchangeable. And that's yeah. not true. So the way that I think about it is this, and, th- and what I'm going to address tonight is this specific thing, which Saeed in the book addresses as well.
0: Okay.
2: Because it's very important that we critique these stuff, this stuff from from specific historical and material conditions. It's, it's important right. because if we don't, then it does actually fall into the territory of anti-Semitism, which I right. think is important that we we. We bring up in this conversation and say, "Like, look, like it's important to avoid genuine anti-Semitism." So,
0: yeah, anti-Semitism is bad.
2: (laughs) Yes, it is bad, Um, as people have called it before. I think Philosophy Tube, you know, she did an incredible video about this a while back, where she referred to it as being the socialism of fools, which I think she gets from somewhere else. But yeah, it's exactly right.
0: Before as well, anti-Semitism
2: is the socialism of fools, right? So, what is Zionism? It's a really great question and it's the one that he tries to address in the book. So Zionism was a political project that really started in the mid 19th century and really started to pick up steam by World War I. And what it was was that the Jewish people who had been largely scattered around the globe and had felt the consequences of being scattered around the globe. Right. And again people I, I, without
0: a state, right?
2: Yes, they were they, yeah, and, and the way they referred to it is a people without a land. A land without a people. That was the phrase that was used to sort of, that was the slogan of Zionism, right? Now, the people without a land part, that was absolutely right. The Jewish diaspora did not have a land. But the idea that there was a land without a people was not true. And people often wonder, why is the United States so connected to Israel? Why is that the case? And the argument that I think Said makes in the book and one that I agree with is that it doesn't have anything to do with sort of the cheap, disgusting kind of anti-Semitic tropes. Well, it's like, well, APAC rules the world and you'll hear all this kind of bullshit.
0: <laughs> of course not.
2: Yeah. <laughs> what it really is, is at its heart, Zionism is, according to Said, and I agree, is a European settler, settler colonial project. Yeah. And it uses the sort of ideological architecture of European style colonialism as its justification for um, Mm. sort of moving into the land of Palestine. So pre-1948, there were not as many Jewish people in Palestine, as we understand it as Palestine, as there were Arabs. Um, and, And it's also important to note that there were also subcultures within the land of Palestine, which would later become Israel, that were not Arab, nor were they Jewish, so you had, okay. um, you had a Christian community, you had um, a, uh, a unique sect to the region called the Druze, D-R-U-Z-E. And then there was like one other one. I can't remember. Okay. So you have all these different cultures all in one small, small place. Keep in mind, Israel's not very large and, you know, and it's right next to Egypt. Jordan is right above it and <clears throat> Syria is right next to it. So it's in this very small pocket. And Zionism's whole project was that thousands of years ago, the Jewish people laid claim to Israel, and that was their chosen land. Right. And what Zionism's project is, is to return to the homeland of the Jews, right? So it's important to note that Judaism is a religion. And Zionism is a political project that uses religion. And I think those are the two things that I think it's important to understand how they're different. Right. I'll, I can stop there. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. That is, I'm just thinking like, yeah, like uh, where it is. I've heard it said, uh, obviously I'm still connected to the atheist community in various ways. And yeah. uh, it's often discussed about Republicans uh, in the United States being, so pro-Israel because of their uh, belief in uh, theocracy in America. They really Mm want to push forward like their Christian theocracy.
2: Yes, I agree. And I think that's a huge part of it. And also a part of it that's super important is the way that they interpret scripture. So um, a YouTuber, I really, really love. She's incredible. uh, Rebecca Watson just did a video about this where she talked about, there's the ancient prophecy of of Gog or Magog, okay. the city of Magog. And so there are a lot of right-wing evangelical Christian theocrats in the United States that support the, the Israeli state in the Zionist project, largely out of self-interest. So they'll talk a lot about like, oh, we care about the you, the, the plight of the Jewish people. They don't really care about that. That's like the kind again, right. that's the ideological architecture they put on top what they really want, which is that they believe by the return of a Jewish state the, and and this and the the establishment of a Jewish state that the Christ will come back and right, begin right. And, and begin the sort of the rapture and right. you know the, the the redeeming of the human race. Like that's what they genuinely believe. So that's a huge part of it, right? And I think that people who think of themselves as largely secular would nevertheless, who are part of the sort of right-wing project of of Zionism, which I see Zionism as a right-wing project. I know that people think of it as being sort of a, there are liberal Zionists, Mm -hmm. you know, people who like write for the Atlantic or Peter Beinert or whatever, but if if you, but if you, but if you really want to understand like the nature of the situation, like liberal Zionism does exist, but that doesn't necessarily make it left-wing. No, Um, I would (laughs) would argue
0: that liberalism is also right-wing or at least. Centrist, yes. right? <laughs> yes.
2: So there isn't like a left-wing Zionism, right? That right. just doesn't really exist. So you're right in the sense that the United – so the component you just talked about is super important, right? There's this sort of cultural, religious, ideological connection between sort of Zionism as a project and the United States and sort of right-wing theocracy as a project. But what I think ultimately ties them more together, and I think what Said argues in the book and I do, is that both of them are built on sort of European style settler right. colonialism, which in my opinion, and it's Said is, writes this in the book, and I know this is controversial, but it essentially is based on white supremacy. Yeah. So yeah. the, the, the argue, I mean, and this really goes to the heart of a lot of the issue. So if you look at, Let me see if I can find a quote here from one of the writers. Um, I mean, this is – I think it's really instructive because this stuff that I'm going to try to find here in the book, this passage passage from this journalist, it literally reads like something that Sam Harris could have written. It's it's incredible. So, yeah. So I'm going to read this to you now. So before I read this section, I'm going to preface this by saying that, like, there are a lot of people – who are Zionists, who believe in the project of Israel, who are not racist. I want to stress that incredibly, (laughs) okay? They're not racists, you know? But the project itself, one of its unintended consequences is racism. Because the way that it's set up is that Israel, from the very beginning, has always tried to set itself up as being connected to Europe, Mm-hmm. And it sees itself as an extension of Europe. It doesn't see itself really as a part of the Middle East, even though it is. It right. sees itself more in kinship with Europe. And there's a reason for that, which is that the justification for it is the same justification that that the, that the founders of the United States used to not only wipe out the Native American population in the United States, but also to subjugate African Americans in slavery, which is this idea of greater or lesser races. Scientific racism in and of itself is a huge component to settler colonialism in general and the Zionist project in particular. It's something you can't get away from. And with that in mind, I'm going to read you this passage. This is from a gentleman named Dr. A. Karl Bach, who was a distinguished citizen of Israel and described by Zaid as not a crude demagogue. He wrote this article um, in the publication mariv on october 7th 1955 so this we're well we're almost 10 years out from the creation of israel which was in 1948 okay so this passage is fascinating i may not read all of it because it's kind of long but i'm going to read part of it these arab is arab islamic countries do not suffer from poverty or disease or illiteracy or exploitation they only suffer from the worst of all plagues islam Wherever Islamic psychology rules, there is the inevitable rule of despotism and criminal aggression. The danger lies in Islamic psychology, which cannot integrate itself into the world of efficiency and progress, that lives in a world of illusion perturbed by attacks of inferiority complexes and megalomania, lost in dreams of the holy sword. And it kind of goes on like that. Wow. Right? Yeah. And so it's so when you think about the whole idea the, the, and this goes and into like sum this up perfectly some of your listeners may know this but there's this stupid disgusting racist tweet that Ben Shapiro did a few years ago oh yeah yeah where he said you know essentially along the lines of like israelis live in civilization and arabs like to live in open sewage yeah yeah and this goes back into that whole paradigm which is that Settler coloni- you know, settler co- colonialism is based on progress, right? So <laughs> scientific right. advancement, scientific progress, which Israel has been a part of. There's no doubt that, right. that there's been some material scientific project, progress as a part of the, the Zionist project. There's no doubt, but it's also tied to this idea that the Arabs are ungovernable, that they are savage, that they are governed by their passions and not their intellect that they are incensed by tribal notions, all this kind of shit. Right.
0: Like that's literally the rhetoric you hear about from racists all over the place, all over through time.
2: (laughs) Right. And and it's the same kind of argument, you know, just, you know, take out Arabs and put in, you know, blacks or put in Asians. Like it's the same shit, right? right? Which is that we are a part of a higher stage of civilization and therefore because we're a part of a higher stage of civilization that gives us the moral license to do what we do right right and that is i think the problem of zionism as a political project is that from the get go it acknowledged that in order for it to succeed someone had to fail because it was never it was never predicated on the idea that we would create a mutual agreement between palestine and us, and that we would create right. a dual state or some kind of unified secular state where everyone lived together. Um, that was never the project, because ultimately, the the Zionist project is an ethno state project. It's it's the idea of a yeah. Jewish state for the Jews, and and for decades they basically denied the Palestinians that that they have really existed, and so you, you right. would often have where they wouldn't even talk about them, or they wouldn't even speak about them. So, you know, from the standpoint of, of Zionists, Zionism's victims, as as Said calls it, is really the complete degradation of not just the, the political identity with which you affiliate with, and the state identity that you were part of your whole life, but it's also a real destruction of your sense of dignity, of your sense of autonomy, and your sense of justice. Those will go all out the window. And so, again, it's important to understand that, like, there's a logic to why Israel is the way it is, because it's built into the ideology that created it. And so it's it's basically seeing people as less, some people as less than human. And in doing that, it creates a project that ultimately justifies itself. And so... When you hear dumbasses say things like, well, this is – and you've even heard politicians – I mean, even Obama, I think, has even said this, where they say, well, this is this is a conflict that's gone back thousands of years. Actually, that's not true. <laughs> that's not even remotely true. That's total horseshit. First off, Islam has only been around for about 1,400 years. Right. So it can't be thousands of years, right? Judaism itself goes back, what, four to 6,000 years. But the conflict itself is not thousands of years old. It can't be. Yeah, no. And and you'll often hear this, I think, even in atheist circles. This was an argument I believed in when I was more ignorant, was that like, oh, if they could just get over their religion, then they could get along. But that's not the issue. The issue is one of national independence, where the British Empire essentially promised both sides of this conflict that we will provide you with national independence. <laughs> right. And then they renege on both of them. No surprise, yeah, right? So in course. World War One yeah. it was called the Balfour Declaration, which we discussed before, and I think in the last episode, we talked about Lord Balfour's declaration, which was to create a state of Israel right. in then known as Palestine. And that was after World War One or during World War One. Obviously that didn't happen. And then the Holocaust happened, right? And so there's a lot of like understandable, like the, the Jewish people should have their own home. There's a logic to that. There's a moral weight to that that totally makes sense. Yeah. But that doesn't, but it doesn't make enough sense to build that, which is a moral project in and of itself, on land that is already occupied people by people and not including them in that process. So when Israel was created between 1944 and 1948, Israel was declared a state in 1948. You'll often hear politicians talk about how the United States of America recognized was the first country to recognize the state of Israel. It did it 11 minutes after they declared it. Um, and okay. so, so ultimately if you look at anyway, sorry, what was going with this is so with all of this in mind, you know what what is the Palestinian identity, right? And so the Palestinian identity is one, and this is the other one of the other big chapters of the book, is what what does it mean to be a Palestinian? Mm-hmm. And eventually and, and when so when we talked about earlier about the slogan of Zionism being, you know people without a land, a land without a people." Um, Palestinians are a people without a state,
0: yeah.
2: and so they don't they don't have the kind of political representation or political freedom that we would. Or that even Israel has, right? Right. And so, right. you know, today i mean and, and the thing is there are many maps you can look at. You know, you pre nineteen forty eight Israel, the creation of Israel as a state, and then you have the pockets of within Israel itself that were that were Palestinian territories. So you have the West Bank, mm. the Gaza Strip, and then you have East uh, I think it was Jerusalem and the Golan Heights, less so the Golan Heights today. Right. And part of that is because of settlements. So Israel over the last 70 years has continually pushed up against Palestinian territory and claimed it as its own. And, you know, after saying we will not do this, they proceed to do this, which is very similar to what the United States did with Native Americans, where we would make treaties with Native Americans, where, you know, you can stay in this land, and then eventually we would just either force them out or kill them. And somebody posted a graphic that I think is instructive about how close the project of Israel is to the project of the United States. And it's like the land that the Native Americans get to have and the land the Palestinians have, and it just dwindles over time into like just little pockets that they get to keep. And so they don't, you know, you can't you can't drive a car anywhere. You can't just leave anywhere. You can't, you know, you know, people in Gaza I think only have like four hours of electricity a day. Like it's just, it's, it's they live in absolutely inhumane conditions. And so, yeah, it's – it's. and then for those who left, the identity of feeling like an outsider, that you kind of don't belong anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. And you would think that the people who founded Israel, who lived the very same thing as a part of the Jewish diaspora, would have some kind of sympathy for that. And I would imagine that many rank-and-file people do, but the leadership doesn't. But the leadership just doesn't.
0: It, it often, yeah, like it makes me think of like the, uh, like you can probably talk to a random citizen of Israel and they would yeah. be, you know, sympathetic and they would say, yes, we need to do something to fix this situation. But uh, as far as the people in power, the state itself, it often, it, well, states don't like to give up power once they have it. Yes. <laughs> so they, they won't give up resources, land, power, anything if, once they have them. Mm-hmm. So.
2: And again, it, you're right. And and the thing is, is that the and I don't want to I want to tread lightly here because I think it's important that there are some scholars, particularly Norm Finkelstein, who's written a book called The Holocaust Industry, where he talks about the way in which, and again, his words, not mine. You can get shitty with him. Don't get shitty with me. I'm <laughs> just a messenger. But that essentially, in some respects, that you know some of the more cynical and uh, I think, you know, m- morally questionable to say the least, people who support the Zionist project kind of use the Holocaust in a cynical way to mm. sort of justify their their, their 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 own abuses against the Palestinians. And again, I'm not saying this is the majority of the people. I'm not saying right. that's what they do. But that's, so, yeah. I just was wondering, like, okay, when was the book written again? So this book, The the Question of Palestine was written in 1979, and then he wrote a lengthy introduction and epilogue that were written in the early 90s. So again, okay. you know, so this book is written, I think, 10 years before the creation of Hamas. So Hamas right, doesn't come right. up in the book at all. Right.
0: Yeah, that's kind of what I was wondering. Like, uh, uh, I know that Hamas's even existence and their role in uh, Gaza uh, is a, a tool that many people Used to justify crimes by Israel.
2: Yes, and and I want to I want to make sure that we we not excuse or like right the crimes of of, of Hamas against people, but th- but it is proportionality, right? So like when Hamas fires off rockets, you know, one, two, three people might die. Most of them are going to be IDF soldiers, right? When I when when Israel shoots off in, in rockets in the Gaza in Gaza they kill kids i mean it, it, you know they kill children they kill women yeah, yeah. they kill they you know they kill young people you know it's they kill indiscriminately and it's often hundreds if not thousands of people right you know people you know right, the, right. the you know over 700,000 Palestinians were essentially evicted from palestine between 1944 and 1948 and excuse me so like we've seen time and time again And a lot of times also that, you know, Palestinian refugees ended up in Lebanon and this, you know, a lot of them ended up in Lebanon in the 19, uh, 1970s and into 1980s. And when, um, Israel started to bomb, uh, and started their war with Lebanon in the early 1980s, um, this led to refugee camps and refugee sites of Palestinians being bombed and killed. And, and and it's, it's, there's, there's indiscriminate violence that exists. And so again, Because I think it's important not to say that, like, when you, because it's, I don't know, like, it's kind of the argument of, like, well, you know, if she hadn't worn that short skirt, she wouldn't have been, you know, assaulted. I don't want to say that. Victim blaming. Right. Yeah, I don't want to do victim blaming here, but it's important to understand that, like, Palestine does not have an actual military.
1: Like, it just doesn't.
2: Um, and so, you know, you know, Israel has a massive, well-trained, well-funded, largely by the United States military that is extremely successful at its job, which is to obliterate people and to obliterate buildings. I mean, they do things by design, right? Like so recently, you, you the, one of the big news stories was them destroying the Gaza journalism building that had the Associated Press. It had Al Jazeera in it. And the justification that they used was, well, Hamas, it was suspected that Hamas had leaders in there. <laughs> and this was parroted by the Western press. And it turns out weeks later that, no, that was a complete, that was a complete lie. Like they just right. made that up to justify it. Right. So Hamas is kind of like the the catch-all explanation that sort of covers up the crimes of of, of Israel. And it just shouldn't, you know. And again, that's yeah. not to discount the actual crimes of Hamas. It just doesn't. But yeah, no, you know, yeah, two
0: things can be true at the same time.
2: Fucking a, <laughs> like that's exactly right. So, you know, and in many ways, Hamas was a logical result of the sort of the failures of the organization that Said spends a credible amount of time on in the book and lauds quite a bit, which is the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Okay. The PLO, which was led at this time by Yasser Arafat, whom some people might know, he was very, very influential within Palestinian politics. He was a part of the Camp David Accords in 2000. He was a part of the Oslo Accords in the early 90s. Um, And, you know, a lot of the sort of more radical end of Palestinian politics saw him as sort of a capitulator. And, okay, yeah. and so, you know, Hamas, in my opinion, was a logical result of some of the failures of the more moderate voices within um, the Palestinian struggle.
0: Yeah, like that sounds I, I I try to on some level, like draw parallels, right? Like if we're drawing a parallel with North American settler colonialism and we think like, OK, what would we say if indigenous peoples had, you know, had started bombing things and, and started acting in, like a aim, like uh, yeah. not that they bombed a lot of shit, but like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: Well, the black Panthers is another example. Yeah,
0: that's right. Like uh, it, from my perspective, these backlashes, they often seem very uh, like justified, even if we don't necessarily like everything that they do.
2: Totally. Right? Yes. Because I think of it this way, you know, it, it's like, if you, if you back a dog into a corner and you keep kicking it or you keep poking it with a stick. At some point, it's just going to rip and rip you. It's going to just rip out and revolt against you. That's the same situation, right? You know, the, the Palestinian people don't have that much of a recourse against whatever Israel wants to do. Right. So, so, you know, because, again, they don't get to the tune of three to five billion dollars a year for the United States. You know, so, you know, to kind of catch us up to today, because unfortunately, we lost – Edward Said almost 20 years ago now, and this book is a little bit more dated. I mean, the future for for Palestinian struggle is a, is, a, is the future of the struggle of the, of the broader left. If you consider yourself a leftist, whatever stripe, you should find a kinship with the struggle for Palestine. Yeah. And th- there is some criticism within the left, I would call it the trad left, of people who – say, hey, why do we almost always so weirdly focus on Israel? This is a criticism you'll often hear a lot about, like, why does the left always obsess over about Israel? Well, um, the main reason that I think it's important to talk about it is because the, the single largest foreign supporter of Israel is the United States, and I'm an American citizen, right? You know, my government is doing this stuff in my name. It's doing it in yeah. the name of our citizenry. So – and has been doing it for years. I mean, there's a, t- a statistic in here that between, you know, a period of 30 years from the 40s through the 70s or the 80s, you know, the United States gave $77 billion worth of aid to Israel, right? Right. So, so you know, that's why I care. I mean, <laughs> you know, and people well, – why do people always weirdly focus on it? And it's like, well, because – it is the foremost struggle, right? And, and, it, and, it's, and it is akin to South Africa, which is part of the reason why right. the BDS movement, the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions movement, is one of the most moral movements of our time. It's the thing that should, you know, this is exactly what was done with South Africa. And that's going to be the success going forward. And you're seeing a lot of bills across the country, especially in red states, trying to make BDS illegal. Which is a yeah. violation of the First Amendment. It's just a, it's a flat <laughs> out violation of political rights. And these people yeah. talk all the time about how many care about free speech, but then it's like, well, no, it's for free speech you like. It's for it's for freedom of you to say bigoted and racist shit, you know, on Joe yeah. Rogan's podcast. Like that's the fucking like that's the free speech you want.
0: Yeah. That's so right.
2: my thinking on the subject is that political leaders, I think political leaders with high within the government. I mean, particularly people within the Democratic Party, it's not enough. It's just not enough. I mean, the fact is that we have sitting members of Congress who say that Israel is an apartheid state is huge. Like, because right, one, right. it is. It just, it objectively is. And I remember when I was in high school, uh, when Jimmy Carter released his book, Israel, uh, not Israel, Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid, where he talked about um, this very thing. And he, there was a whole documentary about that whole Era When that book came out, I think it was like 2007, you know, and, and Alan Dershowitz and all of the, the ADL and all of the usual suspects came out of the woodwork to call Jimmy Carter a, a, an anti-Semite because he had said this stuff. When he was saying very basic truths, you know, right that were, you know, that were essentially like obvious to anyone involved. And because... This book was written in the late 70s. This book took place after the first Camp David Accords in 78-79, which were brokered between Egypt and Israel, um, which Jimmy Carter was a part of. It's one of his singular ac- accomplishments as president. And so Jimmy Carter has a very lukewarm reception by Said in the book. He he doesn't hate him, but he doesn't love mm, him either. Mm. He's just, you know. I mean, I would say in the history of American Empire, like Jimmy Carter is certainly one of its softer faces. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, but but not perfect. By any not story. perfect, but he's still the face of the empire, right? But the fact right. that a, that a former president would flat out say this is an apartheid state was like huge, and he got all, he right. got all raked over the coals for that shit. But yeah. now that we actually have sitting members of Congress saying the same thing is great. What I would argue for those like Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, AOC, I would love for Bernie Sanders to do this: is to flat out say we support BDS. That you know you should support BDS, and I know that like as a sitting member of Congress, that's a, that's a bold move to make. Right. But I think that really separates the, the, the sort of the wheat from the chaff. To me, it, that's that's the moral movement going forward. It's not enough to just say these things are bad. You actually have to explicitly support the most broad based nonviolent movement that's dedicated to peace and justice in Palestine. So like you you either support it or you don't. And if right. you don't, then get the fuck out of the way because you're not serious. And and had Saeed lived, he would have certainly have supported BDS.
0: Well, I I just feel like I've seen uh, some, I don't know, pretty harsh criticism coming from people that it seems like it's so disingenuous, like this idea that we're going to boycott company things coming out of Israel. Like, how is that, you know, anti-Semitic terrorism or, you know, like, (laughs) like, I'm sorry, it's just not like we're just not buying things from a, a state. That is har- harming innocent people.
2: <laughs> exactly, right? And it's important you bring up the word terrorism, right? Because that's the, that plays a, a, a key part of the book where he, where he talks about how a huge segments of the population are often just referred to as terrorists. There's no right. discussion. There's no debate. There's no obvious evaluation of the facts of yeah. the case. They're just described as terrorists because that's the way of just, to, you know, get it off the hook and you can do whatever you want. And we saw what happens when you do that kind of shit. And that was the Bush era, right? Where you had waterboarding and, and, you know, extraordinary rendition and, and, you know, and can, you know, political prisoners who, you know, in Guantanamo Bay and and all the, you know, the mass surveillance of Americans. We know what happens when you use that sort of logic and language of terrorism. So it's the same thing again, is instead of, because what calling all these people just terrorists or oh they're all they're just evil, they're all like Hamas. what that does for the Zionist project is it allows itself to get off the hook. It, it allows it to get sort of a get out of jail free card where it doesn't actually have to reckon with the consequences of its own with its own um, project. It, doesn't, it yeah. doesn't have to deal with them. It doesn't have to deal with the fact that you share this land with the people that you forced mm. a lot of them out that you stripped away any rights of those who stayed and you're continually taking the land and the, the lives, the literal lives of the people who stay all in the name of your project. And by calling them terrorism and just calling them terrorists, then you don't have to deal with it. And so like that's, and so it's important I think for people to understand that the way that the Western media, particularly the American media covers Israel is almost terrible. I mean, it's, it's absolutely horrible. And, so it's important to follow good sources, people who are good on this issue. So like, yeah. Norm Finkelstein is one. Abby Martin of the Empire Files, you know, she's done an incredible documentary about Gaza that I highly recommend everybody watch. Um, you know, Katie Halper, um, anybody on the left who understands this issue broadly, they get it. And yeah, yeah. because I ultimately what Said argues for in the book is a secular, Either two-state solution, which is largely dead now, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. it's almost impossible, or the mainstream position, which is a one-state solution, where you grant full and equal political rights to Palestinians and that you return the the settlement lands to them. That's that's the basic, that's the bare minimum. And so, you know, Said makes the argument that like what we need to develop is a sort of, you know, much akin to the late Michael Brooks, this idea of a cosmopolitan humanist, secular sort of uh, uh, polity that is rooted in human rights, that's rooted in in true like values that represent everyone and not just pockets of people
1: yeah. or
2: a particular ethnicity or a particular religion. Yeah. And so that's really the future. That's the hope that we go for. So like I said, I, I think Question of Palestine, it's a great book. Um, I th- highly recommend people check it out. Um, and, um, Saeed was one of the best and, um, you know, until the very end, he was always a strong supporter of his, of, uh, of Palestine and its future. So, um, plus there's also a really great picture of him, like throwing rocks at IDF forces, which is just fun. Um, but, uh, while he was, (laughs) you know, dying of cancer, there's like a picture of him in like Palestine in like 2000, he's throwing rocks and he's with these other guys, you know? He he practiced what he preached. He genuinely believed in the project. All right,
0: where can people find your stuff?
2: <laughs> they can find me. They can find me at um, uh, Justin excuse me JustinClark.org, which is my website. You can find me um, at JustinClarkPh on Instagram. Um, I recently uh, published an article on Lenin and religion with Midwestern Marx, the um, online publication, and I have an article coming out um, this month. Uh, in the, the Truth Seeker magazine oh, cool. um, uh, about Robert Ingersoll, my thesis subject, and his um, his sort of supposed encounter with uh, Lou Wallace, the guy who wrote Ben Hur. Um, so okay. I, <laughs> I expect the writing more about for the Truth Seeker in the future. And uh, yeah. And, and Reed Edwards, I... I highly recommend people go read the, the question of Palestine. Um, and then the other book I highly recommend people check out is a book called 10 myths about Israel, which is by an Israeli historian named Elon Pape. So,
0: okay, cool. And I guess uh, before we go, I just, uh, this is the first time we've been doing this on Twitch. Uh, yeah. This is the only place we're going to live stream this. Uh, obviously, if you want to rewatch it, I will have this out in two weeks approximately when I'm done all the processing and everything.
2: And then I think what we'll do um, next time uh, we will do um, we'll do the deficit myth by Stephanie Kelton, which we were going to do this week, but I wanted to do this book first to sort of. Yeah. But next week we'll be talking all about MMT. Or next time sounds
0: together. good. <laughs> sounds good. That's all, folks. Thanks for listening. Remember to share this show with your friends and on the social media site that you use the most. Thank you to everyone who supports this show on Patreon. It's really appreciated and it helps me spend more time on this and my other projects when I'm not at work so that I don't have to work as many hours at gig jobs. If you want to contribute, you can do that at patreon.com slash skeptical leftist or you can send me money on PayPal at paypal.me brainstormpodcast If you can't contribute financially, then a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app of choice or one of the podcast review sites like Podchaser would be great. If you want to find more from me, then make sure to check out my link tree at linktr.ee slash skepticalcory. You can find all my social media stuff there as well as links to my other shows, which include Skeptarchy, which is a panel show I do with some very smart people, and From Many People's Strength, which is a podcast about Saskatchewan politics. My Twitter is at Skeptical Lefty, and my Facebook page is The Mind of a Skeptical Leftist, or you can send me a friend request at facebook.com slash cjbrainstorm. I accept most friend requests. Um, you can also email me at leftist at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening and or watching, and remember, the truth leans left.